Hey, before we jump into the message, I want to share with you um, one of my last experiences that I had when I left the military, when I left my assignment at the Pentagon. Most of you know I was active duty for 13 years, and, uh, and there's just this moment um, that I had that I'd like to share with you, and it was my instructions to the person who were replacing me for a vital part of my job. She was also enlisted. Uh, she was also active duty. And so here are the instructions that I gave her. Never wear your uniform to do this job. Never wear a V-neck, or if you have to wear a V-neck shirt or your collar comes down in any way, make sure you tie a scarf. Make sure you wear a scarf and you're literally covered up to here, okay? In, in never wearing a uniform and wearing civilian clothes, make sure that you have on long sleeves, and if you don't want to wear a shirt with long sleeves or a blouse with long sleeves, make sure that you have a jacket to wear. And always, when you go into this part of our job, walk in with a confident but submissive posture. Does anybody find those instructions odd? In the 21st century, to talk to a fellow female professional, a fellow non-commissioned officer, and tell her all those things, anybody find that strange? And yet in no way am I distorting the instructions that I gave to her. What you lack is the first part of those instructions. What you lack is the context. You see, in my assignment at Central Command's Washington Liaison Office, I was responsible for getting visas for my four-star general and his entire travel team to go to the 26, well, 24, because two of them were not friendly nations, but the 26 places he traveled around the world to get visas in his passport from those embassies for he and his 20-plus people that traveled with him. And so that meant that I had to deal with Middle Eastern embassies. I quite frequently had to deal with the embassy at Saudi Arabia. Now, I don't know what you know about Middle Eastern culture, but the first thing you should know is that in the military in the Middle East, enlisted people have, are not given any regard or respect whatsoever. They are not considered equal but different positions. They are considered to be less than. They are, it's a class system, and they are a lower class. There's no such thing as a non-commissioned officer that garners any respect whatsoever. They are simply a servant class. And no one who is an officer and in a position of leadership gives them any respect or regard. Then, it's the Middle East, and most of the Middle Eastern countries don't have a high regard for women. On top of all of that, did you know, do you understand that when you walk into an embassy, that embassy is the sovereign soil of their nation? Like the Saudi Arabian embassy in DC is not considered US property, it is considered Saudi Arabian property. It's why in all the spy movies, you ever watch the spy movies where they're, like, they're racing to get to the foreign, like they're racing to get to the U.S. embassy in whatever country they're in, and the second they do, it's all safe. Like they stand on the other side of the gate, going nee 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 nee, right? Because nobody can come on to U.S. soil, even though they're in a foreign land. See, my predecessor before me didn't know all those things. And, and really, she had no reason to. I was a Middle Eastern specialist. I spoke Arabic. I had been trained. I had traveled and visited those nations on several occasions. And so in that, she didn't know those things, and it caused a lot of problems. Like, can I tell you all when the ambassador has to call the royal family to get the boss's visa so he can leave on time? 
it's not a good thing. <laughs> so with all of that context, do you understand why I gave the instructions I gave to my replacement? Church, context matters. This whole sermon series that we're going through, bringing clarity and context to cliches is important because we get context wrong all the time. And when we do that, it causes problems. Today, we're going to talk about women in leadership. Does the Bible really say women can't lead? Now, I know y'all don't believe that or you wouldn't be sitting here under my pastoral teaching, but it matters. It matters because the majority of the evangelical world disqualifies women from preaching the gospel based on their gender. It matters because the harvest is plenty and the workers are few. It matters because when you become questioned or challenged, and some of you have been, about why you would go to a church with a female pastor, you need to know it's because we haven't relaxed our stance on scripture in this particular area. Today's message, hear me, is not about girl power. <laughs> it is not about being right. Today's message is about rightly reflecting the word of God for the growth of his kingdom because the kingdom is hurt and the world misses out when we disqualify half the population from doing what God may have called them to do. We hurt the kingdom and the world with the statements, women can't be teachers, women can't hold authority over men, and women must be silent. Can I get an amen? Amen. Can I tell you honestly that when I started my own faith journey, other than the women be silent part, because we all know that that just has never been me, but, <laughs> but this is exactly where I started and as I started my faith walk and began to get into scripture, I encountered this woman named Deborah. Do you guys know about Deborah? Deborah was a judge in the Old Testament. Judges were responsible for conveying God's message to his nation before the time of kings. Judges were appointed by God, and they were the voice of authority for his people militarily, politically, and in the world of faith. And God appointed Deborah a judge. And not only did he appoint her a judge, she was a really good judge when all, not all the judges were all that great. <laughs> and that caused me a little bit of a struggle because even though I was a baby in my faith, I believe God to be absolutely true. And if God said women should never lead, then there would never have been a Deborah appointed by God. And that began a wrestle. And the more I grew in my faith, the more I searched the scriptures, the more evidence I saw, the, the more I learned about Jesus and how he treated women, how he interacted with them. The whole story of Mary and Martha, you know, Martha's busy doing all the things and Mary's just sitting at Jesus' feet. And so often we hear that passage preached as she was just looking longingly at Jesus, and we all need to learn to make sure to have our quiet time with the Lord and not be distracted by our responsibilities. And that's a fair takeaway, but it's not the story. It's not the newsflash. The story with Mary and Martha is that 
At Jesus' feet was where the student disciples belonged. It's where the student rabbis belonged. At the feet of the rabbi was the place for the up-and-coming rabbis who were in training, and women were prohibited, outlawed from being there. The new story here in Mary and Martha is that Mary entered a male-dominated space. And not only did Jesus not shame her, he welcomed her. Y'all, get real. I want you to picture a girl walking up into a poker game and somebody handing her a cigar. She belonged, right? Jesus said, you belong here. And then we have Jesus allowing the woman to anoint his head with oil. And once again, we miss the context in that. Like, okay, that's a great gesture. How kind she poured all this out. No, 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 no. It was the job of the priest or the prophet to anoint the king's head with oil. What the woman accomplished was a priestly duty. And Jesus commended her for it. And then we have the angels who tell the women at the tomb, go and tell the men that Jesus is risen. Go and give them the gospel message that there's a risen Savior. And in a society that didn't allow women to give testimony, all four gospel writers give the account that it was the women who saw, the women who came, the women who told Lest you think I'm exaggerating, the Jewish historian Josephus says, we don't allow a woman to give evidence in court because of the levity and folly of their sex. Not insulting at all. (laughs) And all those things made me dig deeper. And and they caused me more struggle. And, And I kept wondering, but what about those passages. Women can't lead. Women can't teach. Women got to be silent. What about those? And I had several people tell me, don't worry about that, Jen. Jesus trumps Paul, so just let it go. But see, I have a problem with that because I wholeheartedly believe in the truth of Scripture. And and I I couldn't figure out the great disconnect between those three statements and what I read and discovered as I got deep into God's word. And so before we talk about the women who have led and what Paul actually says, all of Paul says about women leading, we're going to deal with the problem. We're going to talk today in the beginning about those statements, those problem statements. Are y'all ready? Because we need to know this stuff. Y'all. We need to know that we know that we aren't coming in conflict with the word of God as we encourage the women in this congregation and around. Amen? Okay, so truth, truth, air quotes. Number one, women can't hold authority or teach. What's the source of that problem? Read with me. Most of us are familiar with this passage, 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Man, you can imagine what a problem that was for me. (laughs) Before we even dig into the context of this passage, I want to offer you a different translation. Before you call me a heretic... This translation is offered by N.T. Wright. He is an ancient Greek scholar. He is a New Testament scholar. He is a pastor, a theologian, an author of dozens of critical works in theology. 
And he offers that instead of women should learn in quietness and full submission, they, women, must be allowed to study undisturbed in full submission to God. You see, we read this verse as women should be quiet and be submissive to the men around them because that's the assumed lens our ears hear through, the assumed filter. But the women are being submissive to God, just like men are to be submissive to God. And beyond that, there's no difference in the wording between women should learn in quietness and women should learn undisturbed, uninterrupted. Once again, in this ancient world, the headline was not submission to God or quietness. The headline was that Paul said, women should learn. Women should study. The Jews who prohibited women from studying and learning the scriptures with the men, those women, they should learn. You see, we miss that. But let's talk a little bit about the context, because just like I showed you at the beginning of this message with my experience at the Pentagon, context matters. Amen? And so in this context, who is Paul writing to and why? He's writing to Timothy. Timothy has been sent to the church in Ephesus by Paul to deal with some things. 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 to 5 say Paul is talking to Timothy. He says, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command a certain people to not teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things provoke controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work. Timothy has been sent by Paul to Ephesus to deal with false teachers in the church. And that's why he was sent there originally, and apparently the problem is continuing. Read verses 6 and 7 with me as he continues to talk to Timothy. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Paul was addressing something called Gnosticism. Gnostics were championing false teachings in the house churches in Ephesus. In particular, they were influencing this group of young women that we learn about later in the letter. They're young widows who really should be about either back at work or getting a new, finding a new husband. Like they should not be not having any responsibilities because they're widows because they're too young. That's what the scripture says. Well, that's a different sermon for a different day. But in that group in particular, false teachers are stirring up problems and teaching false truths. And so the problem that Paul had was not with women in these couple verses. The problem he had was with heresy in the church. We have to see the whole thing through that lens. Beyond that, even bigger contextually, we have to understand that Paul is at the church in Ephesus. Ephesus is central to the cult worship of the goddess Diana. Her temple was the dominant feature in the landscape of this major city. It was one of the ancient wonders of the world. This was a cult that did not allow male priests. Herod the Great's historian said of them, they honor women more than men. And I think we can all agree that scripture says that neither one of us deserves more honor than the other. 
Paul is not giving a condemnation of female leadership. He's giving a condemnation of a false religion, a cult that is seeping into the church, monopolizing and elevating the power of women to match the cult that worshiped the goddess Diana. Context matters. Okay, that's Timothy. But surely there's got to be more, more than one verse, right? Like every, they don't hinge it all on one verse, no. What about women must be silent? Because we just heard quietness. But does Paul actually say women must be silent? Yeah. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, let me read these verses for you. They'll be up on the screen. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. I guess I should just go sit down and Pastor Rick can come up and finish this sermon. (laughs) Before we even talk about context, let's talk about why we can't take this passage, this phrase, this verse at face value. I'd like, to read, I'd like you to read with me 1 Corinthians 11, so a page before in his letter, okay? Because remember, they don't have chapter and verse. One page earlier in the letter, let's read the instructions that Paul gives to the church on how women are to bring a word to the congregation in the church. Read with me. Therefore, my brothers and sisters... Be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Sorry, we're going down to the next one. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. Don't get caught up on head covering. Get caught up on every woman who prays or prophesies. In the church, every woman who prays or prophesies. Right here in the same letter, Paul is giving these instructions. And by the way, the whole head covering thing, I have heard the most ridiculous explanations for that. None of us know completely what he's talking about, but I have literally read in commentaries and heard people say, well, the man is the head of the woman, and so that simply meant Paul was giving them instruction that if they were going to get up to give a word or to pray, their husband had to stand right beside them so that they would be submissive to his authority. Let's get some context straight. In Ephesus, the mark of a prostitute was to go around with her head uncovered. The instruction Paul is giving here is, boys, don't wear your baseball caps and a muscle shirt with your sides showing to church. And ladies, we will not lead worship in Daisy Dukes and a bikini top because everybody's going to think we're about something other than Jesus. That is literally the context that we see here. But let's go back and stick with women, be silent. We read a little bit ahead because I moved the verses around in my notes. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. So either Paul has a serious personality disorder because this is all in one little chunk of letter or we're missing something. 
So I want to give you three plausible explanations, and, and hang in there with me for this little bit of academics. It's important you know we're going to jump right back into the story. But there are three plausible explanations, because clearly face value doesn't work, right? And so one of those comes from Gordon Fee, and he would say this is a textual addition. You guys, those of you that with your Bibles, if you open up your study Bibles, you have those commentary notes in the side. Every now and then, as the scribes would copy scriptures late at night, because the same thing happened in the ancient world, they would write explanations, commentaries. Sometimes you'll see notes in your Bible that'll say, well, this part wasn't in the original passage. I've told you before, a lot of times they're explaining some context for us, but we need to know what was originally there, right? And so Gordon Fee says, I think this is, this is a commentary that got pulled in. There's a whole scholarly uh, explanation for that, the Hundreds of things in the eastern region have the verse in one spot. The hundreds of things in the western version have it in another spot. And so there's some validity to that. A much more contextually, culturally accurate theory comes from Ken Bailey. And uh, for that, I want us to understand that the men and the women at this time, as they still do in many regions in Africa and South America and even some places here in the U.S., the men and the women sat in opposite places. They didn't sit together as a family. The women sat on one side, the men sat on the other. This is a Roman context in Corinth. And so what we know about men is that they were educated in the language of the whole kingdom. Women would not, were not educated. They weren't allowed to go to school. They spoke the local dialect. The Roman Empire spanned nations and people groups, countries, so many languages, and so when a speaker would come to church, they would speak the, the educated language. They would speak the taught, the empire's language. Can I ask you something? If you're with a group of 30 of your friends that you do life with every day, and the guy up talking is speaking a language that you have never learned and maybe only understand a few words of, after so long, what's going to happen? Uh, uh, you're going to chit-chat. I'll tell you what happened when we were learning Arabic and I didn't catch something my instructor said. I'd turn to my neighbor and go, what did he say? What did that mean? What was that verb? So you can picture this is happening and the women start to chatter and the pastor goes, shh, and keep speaking in a language they don't understand. And a few minutes later, they're talking again and he says, shh. Finally, he says, ladies, be quiet. Ask your husbands when you get home. He'll tell you what I said in your own language, okay? Can we move on? It's a viable explanation. The third plausible explanation, and it's actually what I think fits the best, not that my opinion really matters in this, I am not a great scholar, but the one that seems most accurate to me is that Paul is quoting the opposition. And for that, we need to understand that Paul's letter to the church in Corinth was responding to a letter he wrote them, a letter we don't have. And in that letter, they identified all these problems. And what we see at the beginning of this letter when we read through 1 Corinthians, which I encourage you to do this week, is that Paul will take a bit of what they said and he'll say, you said, and it's in quotes. And then he responds sarcastically because he's Paul with some quippy little comment and then he goes on to teach them the most accurate way. The problem in determining all of this for us is that there were no quotes in ancient Greek. When we translate, we have to use all our tools of translation to say, hmm, 
I think right here, this doesn't sound like Paul. He's being sarcastic to respond, and then he's giving a good reason. It's a rhetorical device that we use even today. And I think that's most accurate because of what Paul says after. So if you'll indulge me for just a moment, he starts this whole section. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you, each of you, brothers and sisters, has hymns, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. And he goes on to give all these instructions on how to, in an orderly fashion, present these things. For God is not the God of disorder, but peace, as in all congregations. All of you come and bring a word. Then he says, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, all the things we read. And in the next sentence, he says, or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. And if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. I think there's a whole lot of validity that Paul takes something they says and says, who do you think you are? Let me tell you what the Lord says. Now, all of you, again, be eager to bring God's word. The truth is we can't know which or if any of these things is the right option here. What we can with great confidence know is that Paul did not intend for women to be silent. He did not forbid them from prophesying. Instead, he encouraged them to prophesy. And so now we have dealt with the two most troubling passages that bring us the lie that women can't teach and women can't lead and women must remain silent. So now I want us to turn to the truth, the prescribed truth, what does scripture actually instruct us, and then what I call the described truth, the evidence, the, how did that play out? How was the application of that in their lives? Where do we see that? And so I would like you to read with me Joel 2, 28 and 29. This is the prophet Joel talking to Israel about what will happen when the Savior comes. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Now you might say, Sons and well, let me back up. Joel says, sons and daughters, men and women, even servants will prophesy. And the first response you get is, well, that's for the end times. That's not for now. Okay. Well, there's part of the church that's arguing we're already in the end times, but that's another sermon. Actually, that's a sermon series I'll never preach. It's not clear, so I'm not going there. So, <laughs> but let's talk about, first of all, how do we understand what it means to prophesy? You see, to prophesy was the greatest gift given in the Old Testament because it was the mark of the Holy Spirit. And in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, they didn't receive the Spirit like we receive the Spirit when we become believers. They received the Spirit as a matter of position for a king or a ruler of God's people. And they received the Spirit when God called them to the theological, theocratic office. In other words, the church office of prophet. 
The church office was, of prophet was the greatest authoritative position in the entire kingdom. Yes, even greater than the king because it was the prophet who identified and installed kings and as we see uninstalled kings. It was a prophet who had the authority to stand in the king's court and say, Yahweh is pleased with you or you have offended Yahweh. Repent or be punished. It was a prophet, Nathan, who turned to the great king David and called out his sin in front of his entire courtroom. And can I tell you, if it were any other nation, if Nathan were not a prophet, he would have been struck dead where he stood for daring to speak against the king like that. But that was a job of the prophet. It was the prophet's job to bring God's word to God's people. And Joel says, for sons and daughters, for men and women. The closest thing to the office of prophet in the Old Testament is the pastor of the New Testament. But that's Old Testament. If we turn to Acts 2, 17 and 18, the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes these passages, these exact passages to the people. And still sometimes I hear, well, he's talking about what will happen when Jesus comes back. No, you didn't read the whole passage. Let me, let me tell you what's happening here. Peter and the other believers are gathered in the upper room. Jesus has told them to wait there for the spirit to come to wait and to pray, and they'll know when it happens. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit blows into the room with the sound of a rushing wind, and tongues of fire fall on their heads, and men and women, men and women, read Acts 1, men and women gathered in that room go out of that upper room, and they are prophesying, and they are prophesying in foreign languages, and they are not, despite what the kids' video said, talking about what somebody ate for breakfast. They are prophesying. And these people know them and they're like, I don't know that language. They're babbling. What's happened? And someone says, they must be drunk. And Peter says, Peter, the rock. Peter, the founder of the New Testament church. Peter says, these people are not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. No, this was what Joel was talking about when he said he would pour out his spirit on sons and daughters, that men and women would prophesy. Peter says what you are witnessing is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on his sons and daughters, on men and women. But that's just Peter. And Paul is the problem, right? So let's go back to Paul. Paul's teaching us some theology in Galatians 3. He's comparing the old covenant with the new covenant. Under the old law, it was exceptionally rare for women to be able to inherit anything. Women couldn't be heirs without, like, all the wickets. Like, it just wasn't a thing, okay? Rare exception. They couldn't be heirs, except that God says we're heirs to the promise of Abraham, and that causes some problems. And so Paul is going in and explaining that to the church in Galatia. He talks about sons, and then he redefines who the sons are. Would you read with me? So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. 
For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Women, Gentiles, and slaves, you are no longer excluded from being heirs to the promise. And the promise no longer comes through circumcision. Can I get an amen from both sides of the room? But the promise comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Baptism of the Spirit that was prophesied by Joel and evidenced at Pentecost. We are all equal, one, equal in the Spirit, Paul says, because the ground is even at the foot of the cross, church. Amen. Okay, I have one more prescriptive passage. It's the last big theology moment, but I think you'll find some levity in it, okay? Um, And so I want to give you a little context. Paul is writing to a Roman congregation here. I want you to remember that in Roman culture, women were considered property. They were not counted. It's why us pastors always have to say, the feeding of the 5,000 was really the feeding of the 15 or 20,000 because they didn't count women and children. You know, you get that all the time. Women were nada in this culture, okay? They weren't allowed to give testimony. And in Roman culture, women's bodies were actually considered to be defective. They were considered to be incomplete. And yes, that's what I mean. That's what they thought because some things weren't there. They weren't full humans, They were convenient, conveniently created, but defective. I think that they needed to go and read Song of Solomon. But anyway, (laughs) do you have a clear picture of this culture? Women are deformed, they're inferior, they are property, they are less than, and they have no authority. And with all that in mind, would you read with me 1 Corinthians 7, 3 and 4? I'll bet you never read this verse in church. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Pause. That's in line with Roman, you know. Okay, let's keep reading. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to the wife. Paul, who said women can't have authority over men, just said just said that a wife should have authority over her husband in a world where physical dominated mental and emotional every single time. Paul declared, husbands, you don't own your body. Your wife does. As likewise, a wife owns, is owned by her husband. Mutual submission, full authority. And all the married people in the room said, Amen. Pastor Jen, Pastor Rick going on vacation. Oh, okay. Let me just. I want to give a quick clarifier here that's important, not because you're in this room, but because this is going out to everybody. I need to say that in no way does this verse give permission for anybody to be forced upon anyone. Paul does not remove the right to say no. The right of refusal was still there. Paul discusses it later in the chapter. I have literally used this verse heard to say there's no such thing as 
um, in, the, in marriage, there's no such thing as, as being assaulted in a certain way. And so we have kids in the room, so we're going to leave it there. But you hear me, right? Yeah. However, full authority. No hierarchy. That's a lot of theological generalities, but why don't we talk about some people? Why don't we talk about some people that Paul commended for leadership and ministry? Romans, probably what's, what is frequently considered the most significant theological work of the New Testament, Romans, chapter 16. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Concrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and give to her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Phoebe was a deacon, which is a distinguished position of leadership in the church. You say, why does it say servant in some translations? Because the Greek for deacon and servant are the exact same word, and the translators, some of them literally said, well, she's a woman, so it must mean servant, not deacon. Same exact word. Understand this, a letter bearer in the first century, Paul is writing this because Phoebe's bringing the letters. He's got to affirm her. He's got to endorse her. It's like multi-factor authentication. Paul's got to say, she's not coming with it in her hand. I have written that she is the person bearing my letter. And the letter bearer was not the mailman. In this time, in the first century, the person who bore the letter to the churches or to any audience, because this wasn't specific to faith, was the person who was most often responsible for reading and delivering the letter. Not just reading and delivering the letter, but knowing the voice of the writer and being able to answer questions and expound upon it. Phoebe's job was most likely, I cannot say this with certainty, forget me, all the scholars and theologians that have doctorates and doctorates and doctorates can't say with certainty, but contextually and historically and by Paul's own suggestion, it is likely that Phoebe was the person who was responsible for reading the letter to every single house church in Rome. And guys, it is not just possible but probable the first commentary ever given on the book, book of Romans came from a woman. <laughs> Let that sit for a minute. By the way, Paul goes on to mention 28 other people in this letter that he is grateful to. And I think if Phoebe were only the carrier and someone else was the deliverer of the word, I think it's highly likely in commending 29 people he would have commended that individual. But that's just me. In practice, Phoebe is a deacon and she is Paul's representative. She is a leader. We go on in the passage Actually, read Romans 16, 3 to 5 with me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house. First of all, women's names weren't usually included in a letter. When someone addressed a couple, they addressed the husband. It was the husband's job to address the wife. That was the culture. Not only does Paul include Priscilla, but all throughout Scripture, he lists her first. And what we know about that is in all of Paul's writing, he lists the most prominent person 
in authority. He lists the most prominent pastor. He lists the most prominent leader first when he's talking. Phoebe, I'm I'm sorry, um, Priscilla appears to be the leader of this church. But let me give you a little more context because this is not the first time we're introduced to them. Uh, They're going to put up for you Acts 18, 24 to 26. I'm going to tell you the story of Acts 18, 24 to 26, okay? Because it's the first time that we see Priscilla and Aquila in our New Testament. So Priscilla and Aquila are a couple. They're in the church at Ephesus, and, um, and they're at the synagogue, and this guy gets up to speak and to preach. His name is Apollos, and he's a dynamic speaker. And he knows, the ta- he knows the passages. He knows the scriptures really well. He knows all about Jesus. But he's got something a little off. See, he doesn't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He only knows about John's baptism. So they're listening, and they know, they know Paul's teachings. They're in the church, and they hear this great speaker, but he's got something a little bit wrong. And Priscilla's like, honey, we've got to fix that. I mean, Paul's been writing to our leader, Timothy, because this happens in Ephesus where Timothy is, where women aren't supposed to speak or teach, right? Because that's what we read. Anyway, she says, you know, Timothy's been telling us all about um, heresy and false teachings, and we're going to need to take him aside. Let's invite him back to the house for lunch. And they invite him back to the house for lunch, and Priscilla and Aquila teach him about the baptism of the Spirit because he didn't know that part. They teach him more accurately, lest you think I am storytelling inaccurately. The passage says, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him into their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Apollos was a learned man and an effective, powerful preacher, but he didn't know it all. And Priscilla and her husband heard him, took him in, and corrected him at the same exact church where Paul wrote to Timothy. Priscilla was a teacher, a theologian, a church planter, and a house church leader. Paul goes on, there's one more key couple I want to introduce you to. Greet Andronicus and Junia in Romans 16:7. My fellow Jews who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Junia is a woman. There are some translations that say Junius. That didn't happen until 900 AD when the female name was made male, and it was corrected around 1890. There is not one historian that believes there is any evidence for Junia being Junius, a male, and quite frankly, early church fathers from 300, 400, and 500 AD, early church fathers who didn't believe in women in leadership, recognized in their writings this outstanding apostle named Junia that was a woman. She was a female apostle. Apostles were the highest authority in the New Testament church because they were witnesses to the resurrected Jesus who proclaimed the truth of that gospel. And Paul points out not only was she an apostle, she was in Christ before him, which means most likely that she came out of the church in Jerusalem. Make no mistake, Paul esteemed women leaders. He lauded and applauded them for their work. Junia was an apostle and a fellow prisoner. There's a whole nother bit of her being a prisoner, and I don't have time to get into that today. In Romans 16, Paul all in all commends 10 women for their leadership in the church. Besides the ones we've mentioned, he commends Mary, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, Rufus, Julian, Nerus's sister, 
Paul has a lot of great things to say about women leaders. If we go from Rome to Philippi, we see a passage in Philippians 4, 2, and 3. I plead with Eudia and Syntyche to be of the same mind. Yes, I ask you, my true companion, to help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Okay, let me, let me translate that because I invite us into the real story. There are two female leaders and they have had a falling out. And Paul writes a letter to his pastor to say, please sit down with them. Paul does not say, and this is how I have heard this, actually this is how Mary has heard this preach. She brought it up yesterday. This is not a situation where the women needed a man to come and sort it out for them. And we do hear this preached this way sometimes. I'm getting nods around the room, Pastor Mary. It's not just you. No, Paul says, help them because they have contended at my side for the cause of the gospel. Paul does not say, Paul does not say that they have contended for me as I proclaim the gospel. Paul does not say that they have helped me out, so would you sort them out? He says, these women have been in the trenches with me, co-laboring with me for the sake of the gospel, so would you help them? They need a third party. There's one more person I want us to look at, and I want you to read it with me. Colossians 4, verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. To Nympha and the church at her house. Now, there's a lot of other women that Paul commends. I chose this one because, quite frankly, it didn't mention her husband. She's a church leader, and there's no husband mentioned. Now, I have heard it said that Nympha just hosted the church. The church just met at her house. It wasn't her. She wasn't the church leader because girls don't lead. So she was just the hostess. And what about Roman culture that we have heard today would ever say that we need to acknowledge a woman for doing a good job at being a woman and just hosting and pouring coffee like she's supposed to? Or do we think that the preaching was so bad and that the coffee was so good that Paul would commend Nympha, who was just the hostess, but wouldn't commend the actual pastor of the church? Just a thought, right? Church, we have got to stop looking at Scripture through a lens that seeks to disqualify every reference to a female leader because it just can't say that. There are over a hundred passages. Aren't you glad I'm not giving them all to you? Over a hundred passages. Might have felt like it. hundred passages that affirm women in leadership. And less than six that on the surface without context seem to disqualify them. We've dealt with the most difficult today. And I have to tell you, this matters. Y'all are like, but Pastor Jen, go girls. You're a girl pastor. We're here. What's the big deal? It matters because two weeks ago, Pastor Mary was sent an email by a friend concerned that she was sinning against the Lord because she was preparing a gospel message. It matters because 30 years ago, Shawnee set aside her calling to pastor because women don't do that. It matters because three of you in the last month have come to me for help on how to field questions people have for you about sinning under a female pastor. It matters is because, well, as Pastor Dwight said, 
When we prohibit from walking in their calling based on their gender, we become like the servant who hid his talents in the ground and didn't honor his master. The reality of scripture is not a reality of women being silent and submissive. And we need to understand, church, we need to understand that we are preaching this word and women leading in the church today are not a result of cultural drift that has somehow seeped into the church. To the contrary, Satan has used culture to silence the voice of women in the church since the beginning of time and it is contrary to God's word Satan has used the same tricks of deception, miscontextualizing verse and twisting circumstance that he used as a manipulative, manipul- excuse me, as a manipulation of scripture that falsely justified the horrors of slavery. And yes, I just said that. My question is, why can we recognize that Paul in no way was condoning or endorsing slavery because of one or two verses taken out of context, but the majority of the evangelical church still denies women equal footing to preach the gospel? The bottom line is this. Women have led in God's kingdom since the beginning, They are leading and they will continue to lead. God is bigger than us. That is not the question. The question, the choice that we have is will we buy into the same old lies of the enemy or will we, the church, no matter whether we're in this church or another church, will we see the calling of God? Will we see the spirit-ordained calling of godly women to rise up to lead beside godly men and preach the good news of Jesus for the greater fulfillment of his kingdom. That is the choice that is set before us. No speeding tickets. I know you have to go. Uh, before uh, folks, before my uh, my brother here is going to give closing prayer, I want to share some words with you that um, Reverend Dwight Nash and you've heard Pastor Dwight speak here about a month or so ago, but uh, something he spoke and shared to uh, his church, um, and he was speaking to you, ladies, women, sisters. I want to read this to you: You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are equal. Quit ducking your head, quit hiding your gifts, and quieting your voice. You are called, you are invited, you are gifted, and we need you. Keep prophesying and praying. Keep worshiping rightly and proclaiming the word of God correctly. The kingdom of God is better with your voice and your hands and your experiences and your stories. Don't worry about fighting the battle. We will fight it for you, and we will fight it with you. Proclaim the kingdom. Pray for the sick. Be generous. Be fearless. Be powerful. Lead. Girls, prophesy. Wherever God has called you, step into it. You have been commissioned for the work of the gospel. That is good, amen? That is good. But you know, I'm going to add one thing to that. 
You know, women aren't just strong in the church. Women are strong in the world. I mean, my wife and I own a company. She's the CEO, right? Amen? So go out and take your rightful place. Amen? Yeah, conquer the world. <laughs> so I have a little privilege of uh, closing in prayer. So, Father, we thank you for this time together. Holy Spirit, we just are so grateful that you uh, grace us with your presence, that you speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, just prepare us for a week, because we know we're going to be challenged, but we know that as long as we press into you and, and keep you first, that uh, we can conquer the world. So we just pray a special blessing over your people today and their respective families, Lord, and we just give you all the glory and the honor, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.